0: God bless. How's everyone doing today? Okay, so today we will be um, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. I asked Sam if it would be all right um, to pick up right where he left off because continuity is the best, and I love these passages, right? These are just some hearty meat and potatoes types of scriptures, right? They stick to your bones and make you just a sturdy follower of Christ. So um, not a lot of heady theology this morning, just practical Christianity. I'll see if I can't work in some heady theology, heady theology though, just for funsies. Uh, so let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Thank you for this morning that we have together a time to gather with our brothers and sisters to sit at your feet and to see what you have to say. And God, I pray that as we meet you with ears ready to hear, hearts open before you ready to receive, that you would do what you always do when we open your word, which is speak clearly and personally to each and every one of us. Knowing that your word does not return void, you have something for each of us here this morning, and Lord, so we trust that into your hands. We know that you're faithful to do that, so we just ask that we would be ready to receive it from you, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen? amen. It feels darker in here than usual. Is that my imagination, or is that a reality? Um, okay, so that is, that is a bit of a reality. Um, So Jesus here on the Sermon on the Mount is speaking to his uh, disciples, meaning followers, right? Learners, not specifically the 12 disciples that we may think of. Not all of them had been called at this point in Christ's ministry. So it's a message to all of those who have chosen to follow Christ, to learn from Christ. It was as true about those people, those men, women, and children 2,000 years ago. They are that day on that Mount. As it is for us if we call ourselves disciples of Christ. Uh, most scholars believe that the Sermon on the Mount was the common message preached of Christ, that he had become accustomed to speaking as an itinerant preacher. Verses like Matthew nine thirty five, amongst others, just say that Jesus went uh, through towns and villages, teaching in synagogues, uh, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And, and this was that good news. And, and uh, it, it's uh, believed to be this message here contained in these chapters, uh, Matthew 5 through uh, Matthew 7 that we've been studying uh, together. Not necessarily a message uh, about gaining entrance into the kingdom per se, but about life as a kingdom citizen. That's the topic of the Sermon uh, on the Mount. There are expectations for every citizen Of every kingdom, and 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 it's like that throughout the world. It's pervasive. When you travel, you're you run face to face with these uh, citizen expectations. Sometimes they're overtly stated. Sometimes they can be gleaned through subtext. Right, Um, and often uh, they're distinctly different from the citizen expectations that you've grown accustomed to uh, from the kingdom that you have been born into. I went to Haiti this past summer with Denise and um, she let us know that there would be several kingdom expectations, to put it biblically, of living in Haiti or life in Haiti. And she made those things clear to us by uh, recommending books and providing uh, emails. And, and yet there, there are no books or emails that can adequately prepare you uh, for uh, the, the rolling hills of Haiti, or the ubiquitous mosquitoes, however often you hear about them. When you get there, you're astounded by the beauty of that country, and you're Tormented by the mosquitoes of that country, you know it's just the, the 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 duality of life in Haiti, right? And when you get there, you realize that there were several things that you could have just never imagined about life in that country as a, as a citizen of that kingdom. When I, I got there and we uh, we loaded into the SUV at the airport and hit the highway, I was immediately confronted with this discrepancy in 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 my understanding of that reality you see I had only heard of and really kind of understood rural haiti I was expecting to see farms and and small houses and this sort of thing but urban haiti was really not known to me so to be confronted with the tap taps right these like kind of buses that they have there and the motorcycles and the traffic people driving against traffic people driving on sidewalks and 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 uh, and, and honking at everyone honking at everyone. Everything. And not as a sign of aggression or aggravation, but actually as a courtesy uh, was, was baffling to me. In our culture, if someone were to honk at you, you'd be aghast, right? Someone honks at you and you go, whoa, I never, how rude, you know? And, and we, we, what, what an impatient cad, you think, right? Uh, but it's quite the opposite in, in Haiti, quite the opposite, Right, you you honk at everyone as you pass them, uh, and sometimes quite literally drive them off the road, and and they appreciate the gesture. It's considered courtesy there. And it was wonderful to see. I mean, just constantly honking at everyone and they're falling over, you know, into a ditch. They're like, hey, thanks. You know, it's just so pleasant. They're so kind. They're so wonderful. It's simply not the way things are done in this kingdom, but that's the way things are commonly done as a citizen of that kingdom. And and so if you're a citizen here, this is what it looks like, Jesus is saying. And And it's different. There are changes from your old citizenship to that old kingdom that you were born into so this this could be difficult for you there could be a bit of culture shock in here for you certainly an adjustment period for you and so a question that we must ask ourselves as we're confronted with a passage such like this is is are we citizens of the old kingdom or are we truly citizens of the kingdom of christ these are the questions that we're confronted with this morning. And it's a worthwhile consideration as we discuss fasting and the expectations for fasting as we prioritize our kingdom value system. That's what this is really about this morning. So let's begin in verse 16 of, uh, of Matthew chapter 6. And you're going to see that I'm going to stop far too soon. But we will begin in the text. In verse 16, it says, "When you fast," we'll go ahead and pause right there. (laughs) Three words in. Let's pump the brakes. When you fast, right? You will fast. This is the assumption, right? Uh, It's the same assumption that's made about prayers and alms. If you go back and read those passages, it's not. uh, You know, maybe you want to do this. It's not. it's, it's, It's not. You know, if you care to do this, it's when you do these things. When you give. When you pray, and now when you fast, citizens of the old kingdom of Israel, um, before Christ, they would also fast. Fasting was not unusual. For this culture. Um, And I think it's important to define what we're talking about here in terms of fasting. So, a functional definition for fasting, if you are a note taker, would be this it is the voluntary abstaining of food for a period of time as a religious observance. And I'll repeat that again in case you want to capture all the components a voluntary abstaining of food for a period of time as a religious observance. So it had to be voluntary. It wasn't commanded. You won't see this in the Old Testament. It was never commanded that you fast in the Bible. But people all throughout the Bible did it. People all throughout the Bible, including Christ, would fast. And there are several reasons to do it. I have four in my notes that you might want to jot down in your own notes if you're so inclined. Often, uh, often fasting would precede a calling. A calling. Fasting would, pre- fasting would precede a calling. It's, th- this is most powerfully pictured in Christ. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before entering into public ministry. And it would be the same with us that foregoing food, uh, we, we can uh, do that to gain an understanding or an insight or just posture ourselves towards a greater purpose or vision for our lives. The second reason Not just during or before a calling, but uh, at key intervals within the calling. Specifically, deliverance moments of fulfilling your calling. This is seen in Ezra chapter 8. If you read the 8th chapter of Ezra, he's going to lead the country of Israel out of captivity back to Jerusalem. Now, deliverance of an entire nation from captivity is quite a calling. And, and and he he prepares for this uh, for, for this stage of deliverance within his calling uh, it, it, w- with prayer and fasting, not a seminar, not with a sword, but by seeking the Lord through prayer and fasting. A third reason: fasting is often associated with times of mourning, and so we would fast as we're going through these these periods of mourning. And Jesus was confronted with this, wasn't he, with the Pharisees? And they said, well, why don't your disciples fast like we fast? And he said, well, there will be reason to fast when I'm gone. They'll have cause for mourning. But right now, it's a celebration with the Savior. Now, David fasted after Abner, his close friend, was assassinated. Fasting for him was necessary during that time of of intimacy. It was a time of difficulty, so he sought intimacy with the Lord as as uh, as an anchor in an unstable world, before he was tossed by the sea of of chaotic sinfulness. And the fourth reason why fasting might be undertaken is for a period of time of intense intercession. And finally, we see this with David um, as he uh, enters into prayer for his infant son born of Bathsheba in Second Samuel chapter twelve. Now. Uh, This is a difficult chapter to read. It really is. This time of intense intercession that he coupled with fasting was not entered into as a means of changing God or convincing God of his earnestness. That's not why we fast. It was simply to pattern his heart after God's own and gain his will for himself. Right? So it wasn't commanded It's voluntarily undertaken. And biblically, it's spoken of as abstaining from food or water for a period of time. Now, in our times, we've changed this, haven't we? Right? We've kind of broadened it. Um, And speaking of abstaining from anything from like TV and meats to like iPhones and sports. Right? And, And I think that's fine. I really do. As long as it's consistent with the intent, which is to fast as a religious observance. Now, this isn't abstaining from food for dietary reasons, um, which is also good, but that's not what Jesus is speaking about here. This isn't about abstaining from Netflix, you know, because like, They recently uploaded a new Marvel season on Netflix and you binge watched it so much that you forfeited so much sleep that you fell asleep during recess in your classroom and were almost late picking up your students at the playground and the campus monitor shot daggers at you. That would also be a good idea to fast that maybe for a period of time, but that's not what Jesus is speaking about here, right? The fasting is not commanded. It is certainly expected as a normal kingdom citizen behavior. And like I said, it was a normal behavior for the culture of that day. So how is this different in the kingdom of God? And he tells us as we continue reading in verse 16, where he says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Now, fasting uh, by the Pharisees was done every Monday and Thursday to coincide with Moses' ascent and descent from Mount Sinai. That's why they would fast on those days. They were holy days to them. And often what they would do is they would take ash and they would smear it on their faces. Uh, To to make them look gray and gaunt, you know, to make them look uh, just haggard and lean, like they were wasting away. And they would stumble about town on their way to the temple for prayer. And so people would look at them and say, oh my, you look terrible right? And and what's, what, whatever so is the matter, you know? And my acting is tremendous, isn't it? And, and um, they would say, well, I'm just fasting. You know, I might die. I'm, it's been four hours, but I'm really serious about, you know, about God and my relationship with them. My piety protects me, you know? And, and so they, they would enter into this whole discourse to make themselves sound so spiritual about what they're doing. And people would just look at them and say, oh, how religious you are! How close to God you are. How wonderful you are. Oh, how great and holy you are. And we're so blessed to have you as a religious figure in the country of Israel. And and they would say, oh, well, yes, indeed, brothers. And oh, yes, it's all of it. And Jesus would even talk about this pageantry associated with fasting in Luke chapter 18, where he tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that both go to pray in the temple. And he says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. What a prayer. Wouldn't you love that to be prayed in church? You know, Ben gets up here and goes, Oh, I just thank you that I'm not like everyone else here. Oh, I'm so far above them. You know, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. He even provides a list for everyone. All these people, or even like this tax collector, he singles someone out in the crowd. This loser over here, I fast twice a week. And I give a tenth of all I get. And I love that the Bible says he stood by himself. It's as if he, the moment he started praying, God took a step back and was like, I'm not with that guy. We didn't come together. <laughs> that guy's just by himself. Don't misunderstand. You're doing a good thing by fasting. But you're doing it the wrong way. You're doing it the wrong way. They took this thing that God loved and they Corrupted it. God loves fasting. He hates what they turn fasting into. Fasting was introduced in scripture as a way to remind the body that it's not in charge of the life. That your body belongs to God. It's an interesting thing to think about. That we need to remind our bodies that they don't run our lives. Because if we don't, every once in a while, they will, they will. And so God says you need to do this as a way of simply reminding your body that it's not the boss, that God is in charge of your life. And your body doesn't like that. And that's why fasting is so hard. That's why fasting is so hard. Your body doesn't like to be denied because it's so used to getting its way all the time. Every day, the body gets its way, and so he's saying you gotta stop. You gotta tell the body no. We fast to deny our bodies and remind it that God is more important than bacon, right? (laughs) I'm just gonna use bacon because it's the best, right? It's it's emblematic of all foods right now in the conversation, Um, and it deserves to be. Because sadly. Because sadly, most of the time, we amble about acting as if there is nothing more important than bacon, right? When we say no bacon to our bodies, um, even just for a day, listen to this. It is so radical that people notice, don't they? Right? Just saying no bacon to your bodies for one day and all of a sudden, like, you know, heads popping out of gopher hills. People notice. <laughs> he just said no to his body. Right? And, and, and in a world filled with bacon, in a world where the, the importance of bacon is, 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 it transcends life and God and everything else, they go, he said no. And they notice. They say, well, 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 you must have incredible willpower. You must be super spiritual. You're an awesome person. And, and then, and then we, we hear that and we go, yeah, I guess I am. <laughs> and God would look at us and say, well, you know, not anymore. You know, you were for a moment. But now you're actually filling up on something else. You're actually feasting upon a new meal. And I so relate to that. That's so human, right? Because we set out to do something like fasting, to say no to our bodies, to put it in place, to feed our soul, to feed our spirit, to feast upon the things of God. And somehow, surprisingly, our bodies still win, right? The body still has its way. Because he says, if you don't feed me food, I'll make you feed me ego, and it demands to be fed. And it's so easy to give into it. And, and when, when someone notices and says, oh, how spiritual you are, all of a sudden it's like, nom, 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 nom. And we feast upon those ego waffles, which my word processor underlined red because it assumed that I meant to say ego waffles, but it was a pun. And word has no sense of humor. That's, that's what you get when you fast. It's a, it's a time of calling. Right Of the four, an opportunity for deliverance, for mourning, for seeking to align yourself with his will. And we traded it all for an ego meal. That was it. He says, well, that's what you get. In verse 16, continue reading with me. He says, truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, kingdom citizens, when you fast, put oil on your head. Wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You know, last week, um, gosh, it was last week. Time is so, I'm not great with it. Um, I believe it was last week I had my teacher observation and it was very uh, stressful for me. Maybe it shouldn't be, but it was Uh, 60-minute observation on a science lesson. There are these new science standards, and uh, they're associated with a new science lesson plan construction. The NGSS are the standards. The 5E lesson plan is the structure. You need to also include costas, levels of thinking, um, and a variety of instructional strategies. You'll be evaluated using the CSTPs, which are teacher performance expectations, and that's just a lot of spinning plates, right? So, you know, I'm there with all my spinning plates trying to get everything done, and I construct this lesson plan that had everything in it, but seven- and eight-year-olds, they're pretty unpredictable, right? So everything could go off the rails at any moment, Okay, um, And I woke up at 5 a.m. as usual, and I was very mechanical in my movements. I began uh, making my last-minute notes, alterations to my plan, preparations, and then I showered and dressed right like the modern equivalent of washing my face and putting oil on my head before I set out on the road to do this thing. I got to school and I prepped all the materials. I arranged the room. I made copies. I staged the space. Everything looked nice and neat, orderly, pristine, perfect. And um, 7.45, kids arrived. I I had a little more than an hour to remind them of behavioral expectations. Uh, That's a really nice way of saying, like, strike the fear of God into their hearts, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Uh, while also completing my morning routines. All right? Nine o'clock, she walks through the door, the principal. And my heart rate increases. My palms become clammy. Uh, the lesson was on owl pellets, right? Uh, and what we can learn about owls' habitats from these pellets. And if you don't know what an owl pellet is, when, when an owl eats, it doesn't have any teeth, right? They have, they have beaks. I don't need to tell you that. You're all adults. You know that. <laughs> they, they eat their food whole. Um, so when they eat it whole, it goes first to their gizzard, and the gizzard separates the food from the non-food, and then it compresses all the non-food, and they regurgitate a pellet. And so the objective of the lesson was to dissect these pellets and you know, like analyze the fur and bones to see what we can learn about the owl's habitat from them. It's a very hands-on lesson, and uh, there were lots of moving parts, and there were elements of the lesson that were extraordinary. And then there were some parts of the lesson that were less than satisfactory in my estimation. Right? An hour went by... We were leaving for recess, and uh, we had we hadn't finished the written review of our uh, of our uh, exploration, um, and we hadn't recorded our uh, digital presentations, which was a technological component that I wanted to work in, where they would record themselves presenting their findings, right? Which would be very very neat. Um, Sixty minutes were over, however, so breathe easy, Michael, and I did. deep breath you're done and the principal tapped me on the shoulder and said hey I'd like to return after recess because um, I have some things to take care of in the office but the rest of my day is pretty wide open so (laughs) this was pretty neat I'll be coming back right after I'm done there I'll be back here and so stop breathing easy Michael (laughs) it's not over right the fun's just getting started um, uh, uh, we got back to the classroom. We began this write-up. We began recording all the day, where we're just on pins and needles. She could walk through that door at any moment, and we need to be in control. We need to be doing something productive. We need to look fabulous, you know. And and she, but she didn't. And so I dismissed them to lunch. And and then then lunch, uh, in my classroom, some teachers come in to chat. You know, as as as. You know, it was very common with teachers. They're, they like to chat. And so they came in and they're in my classroom and they're, they're having a conversation. And I'm thinking, she hasn't come in yet, but the rest of her day <laughs> is clear. She's coming in at any moment. And so all throughout lunch, I'm organizing these presentations, these digital presentations that we did in Class Dojo. Uh, we, we, and they were awesome. And I'm thinking, okay, well, so we got to get these things ready to display on the screen in case she comes in. We could have like a presentation moment. Where we're all sharing our learning experience. And, and so the other teacher is looking at me, Michael, sit, stop, eat, chat. And I'm like, you don't get it. <laughs> Food is inconsequential. <laughs> I mean, who has time to eat When something is this important, this is a matter of life and death. And maybe that's an exaggeration, but that's how I felt. That's how I felt. And she never returned. She never returned. Not ever. But I I didn't breathe until 3 p.m. when I dismissed my class. And then it was at 3 p.m. that I realized that I, I hadn't eaten the entire day. And it was also at that point that I learned what it was like to fast without pageantry. <laughs> right? This is what it looks like to fast without pageantry. It isn't waking up and thinking, oh, I'm not going to eat today. And oh, how hard that's going to be for me as a serious, so- sober minded Christian person, you know? Because the reality is, most days I don't eat breakfast. For some reason, it only bothers me when I'm fasting that day. (laughs) You know, most days I skip breakfast, I'm fine. I don't even think about it until 10 when I have my, you know, mid-morning snack. That's my own little personal brunch time, you know. But it, it never bothers me. But that morning, if I'm fasting, man, my stomach is screaming. I'm hungry when I shouldn't be because the body is such a brat. It could behave so bratty. Now, the point isn't merely to not consume food. The point is to consume God or be consumed with God. It's not just, I'm not consuming food. It's you're consuming God during this time, you're being consumed with God. I was so obsessed and focused on my observation, on my performance, on my profession, that I didn't even think about food. It didn't draw my attention to... to, Nothing about food drew my attention because the only thing that held my attention was my work. I was consumed with work. And because I was consumed with work, with my profession... With my performance, I was rewarded with a successful observation. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, Such is the case for you when you forego food and consume Christ, when you're consumed with Christ, when you fill your mind and your heart and your whole day with Him, feasting upon Him, He will reward you. And how does He reward us? I think it's very simple. He rewards us with more of himself, a full spiritual belly, so to speak. You emptied it of food so that you can fill it with him, a closeness to him, an understanding of him, an intimacy with him. And it's so amazing what fasting can do to not only put things in perspective, but to refresh and renew our soul to feed on something that is truly filling and something that is truly fulfilling, right? Truly filling and truly fulfilling. And suddenly when you realize that that, would, that is what Jesus is speaking about in this passage, you begin to see how it permeates the whole of the chapter, that he's not actually moving on to a, a different subject here. He's still talking about our body's capacity to seek for meaning in feeding and how that is the wrong intention. And so we continue in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus hasn't moved on to a different topic. He's still very much so engaged in this subject. One of the great absurdities, right, of the human experience is our ability to seek for meaning in feeding. That's one of our great absurdities. Our bodies are such successful salesmen Right, that they convince us that if we just do this or if we just do that, then we'll be satiated. Our bodies are constantly trying to sell us on this idea. So it's cheeseburgers or cheesecakes or it's an overpriced iPhone or an Audi. And that's what it'll take for you to be happy. If you just feast on that thing, you'll finally have the treasure that your heart desires. But soon... We're hungry once again. Always hungry again. Because no treasure can satisfy humanity. Right? We're like Adam in the garden. Right? Everything was right there for him. God created paradise for him, set him in the midst of it all, and said, Everything is here. You have it all. And he said, if I could just taste that fruit, that will be the source of my satisfaction. I'm sure of it. And a single taste is all it took for him to realize that no, it wasn't. And that now he had lost everything that really was. The things we call treasures Are always searching for meaning in feeding. But meaning was never meant to be found in feeding. Jesus said that all that stuff, that's just that's treasures for moths. Right? (laughs) You think about that. That's that's treasures for rats. These are treasures for thieves, but not for kingdom citizens. We have full bellies like no other people in all of human history. And yet we're starving for more. Just one more meal, a larger house, a better job, an exotic vacation. That'll do it. That's what'll satisfy me. That's what'll fill my belly. And we're like Pac-Man gobbling up dots with no end in sight. And he offers the gifts but he keeps the meaning to himself. Now, God is good, but God is shrewd, right? He gives the gifts, but he keeps the meaning for himself. And so Solomon would say in the book of Ecclesiastes that everything under the sun is meaningless. It's a great book. Read it when you get home, right? Super encouraging. You open up to that first verse and you're like, well, this will be, be a romp, right? Right? And he goes, it's all meaningless. Everything is vanity. Everything under the sun. And you go, well, shucks. Isn't everything under the sun? And he's like, that's my point. Everything. Everything. If the sun is touching it, it's meaningless. And here's a man that had it all. He had all the money. He had all the palaces. He, he had all the concubines, if you think that that'll bring you happiness. Right? He had everything. All the wisdom. He had it all. He says, it's all empty it's meaningless but the sun doesn't shine on God he transcends the sun he's spoken into existence doesn't he that that is where our meaning is he and he alone can satisfy human hunger he gives good gifts he keeps the meaning in himself It's not going to be found in the gifts. enjoy the gifts, but don't search for meaning in them. Enjoy them, but don't search for meaning in them. He's hidden true, lasting, eternal satisfaction in himself. And sometimes saying no to the salesman of the body, saying, I want to set aside this thing for a time to remember him and not his gifts, to, to feed and fill and fulfill my soul is what's necessary. To say these things aren't my treasures. I don't want to live my life missing the one treasure of true value. And that's in him. And that's what it takes sometimes to recalibrate your heart because the text here says it pretty simply. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be too. You know um, Linda Dimbleby, a woman that many of you know she she attends the church she 's a close friend of our family, a very close friend and and she was there with miles as a baby when Corinne went back to work. Um, she was like a nanny, I guess, but she grew to be just a member of our family. She met us at home after every single baby was born. It was a weird kind of tradition where we'd come home from the hospital and she would be waiting there for us with bags of In-N-Out, you know? And it was kind of like, if this is what I get when I have a baby, I'll gladly do that. (laughs) Let's have some more babies, you know? (laughs) Because In-N-Out is delicious. And she's incredible. She's incredible. She's also incredibly generous. Every time she comes to visit... Um, She brings gifts for the kids, right? She brings uh, toys and books and games and clothes. We never ask for any of those things. She just does it. Uh, You know, she's just one of those people. She just loves to give um, a heart like God that loves to give good gifts to his children, right? And she's incredible. She's also incredibly generous, and and that's awesome. That's also a problem, Right, and isn't that strange? Isn't that weird? How how something so wonderful can actually become a problem? Right, but it's a problem because of our capacity to corrupt the generosity of a gift giver. Right. Now, when she comes to visit, my kids uh, look in her purse or in her bags, <laughs> and before they even say hello they say, what'd you bring us? That's messed up. That is super wrong. So wrong, right? Look at her, she walks to the door, you know, what'd you bring us? And doesn't that just break your heart? But that's what this passage is about. Children, they're selfish. They're self-centered. They're self-absorbed. And I wonder how far we... Actually, go as we grow out of that time in our lives. Now, because of that generosity, they've begun to treat her like a non entity. I think we really need to hear that. Because of her generosity, they began to treat her like a non entity. You are the stuff you give me, you're not a person to me. You're just that stuff. And that's a real tragedy. But do you see God there? Do you see his breaking heart? Right? We, we discussed it, uh, Linda and, and, you know, Corinne and I, uh, we, we discussed it. And we said, we think that it would be a good idea for you to take a break from giving them gifts. So, uh, just for a while, maybe, so that the kids uh, become reacquainted with you as a person. You know, as, as, a, as a human, not a treasure dispenser, right? Because no one deserves to be treated like a treasure dispenser. But that's exactly how we treat God. And that's exactly what God is talking about here in fasting. He says, you just need to take a break from that gift for a while to become reacquainted with him as the person of Christ. So so that you can become reacquainted with the spirit of God, to become reacquainted with the savior of souls and the father of forgetful children who are often very selfish, very self-centered, very self-absorbed. It begins with you taking an honest inventory and identifying your treasures. Bank accounts, jobs, toys, whatever they might be. None of them are bad things. They aren't. Do not misunderstand this morning. None of those things are actually inherently bad. They are gifts from a God who is good because he is incredible and he's also incredibly generous. But if we become children again, celebrating only the gifts and forgetting the giver, because that is a real problem, because he is the real treasure, and we will take none of his gifts with us, only his mercy, and his grace, and counting of what we did with the greatest gift that he gave us, which was the gift of this life. That's what we'll take with us. Listen, I wanted to teach on the rest of this chapter. But at some point, I had about 20 pages of notes. And Corinne said, you just need to stop, right? (laughs) You just need to stop. So (laughs) I'm going to tell one more story, if I may. And then we're going to end here. Um, rather than finishing the chapter because I think it's necessary in really understanding this point of saying no to our bodies as a means of becoming reacquainted with God and uh, divorcing this sense of materialism, right? This lack of gratitude that I know I struggle with and that many of you may struggle with as well. Um, And so here's the story. I nearly died two weeks ago. That might be a bit of an exaggeration. Um, But I felt as if I was. And uh, don't worry. I'm under the care of an excellent physician. And if you're still concerned after the message, I'll talk to Isaac. He's right there, right? He knows what he's talking about. He can help me. (coughs) So um, it was Thursday. I felt fine. Uh, 20 minutes uh, I had been awake that day. I was packing my lunch, and then suddenly I found myself on the ground clinging to my side. I had this pain in my body that felt like it was radiating from my kidneys through my abdomen. It plagued me all day. I felt nauseated. I felt weak, and I was sweating profusely. Right? Isaac, you're already diagnosing. Stop it. Just listen. <laughs> I went to work, and and taught trying to keep my bodily malady to myself. It was diminished heavily on Friday, um, but returned Saturday morning, three, uh, three in the morning. I woke in just tremendous pain. Um, I was teaching Saturday school that day, the first Saturday school that I've ever taught. You know, attendance had doubled. They told me the day before because um, the principal sent out an all call to the campus notifying all parents that I would be doing a lesson on slime, which is a big selling point for kids. And I would be rotating through several classrooms, so all students would have an opportunity to make and take slime home with them that day. And, but there I was, in more pain than I had ever experienced. A pain within my body that actually felt like organ systems shutting down. It was an unnatural amount of pain, <laughs> and um, I was violently ill, even though I had nothing within my body to purge at that point. I couldn't lift myself off the floor of the bathroom where I lay covered in sweat, convulsing. It was it was pretty bad. I began to review my options. Right, laying there on the ground thinking about choices that I still have. I'm thinking, well, I can't make it to Corinne. I can't make it that far. I, um, I can't drive myself to a hospital. I can't actually sit up or walk. Um, I thought, I could call 911, but how expensive are ambulances these days? <laughs> Even frugal in a near-death experience beat that. <laughs> But instead of doing any of those things, this is the point. I pulled myself out of the bathroom and crawled to my computer. Because after hours of debilitating pain and blurred vision, I still felt it necessary to prop myself up and slap my limp, listless fingers against a keyboard to type an email to my principal and the coordinator of Saturday Academy explaining that I would not be teaching that day. And so there I sat, kind of sat on the floor, drafting an email saying, I'll be admitting myself to the care of doctors because I may well be dying. I apologize for the inconvenience and would like to provide my recipe for slime. So the activity can be carried out in my absence. The supplies are already in my room. Kind regards, Michael Turner. Now, strangely, strangely, as I was drafting this email, thinking that I was dying, the pain began to subside. And so instead of sending it, I showered and I prepared myself for Saturday Academy with only a few hours of sleep and a brush with a mysterious debilitating illness that could return at any moment. I taught the lesson. I did. Rotated through classes and everything. You know, and um, when it was done, it didn't give me the same sense of satisfaction that teaching often affords me. All I could think about was that If I had died, if I had died that moment, would drafting an email detailing my slime recipe really be my final act? Would I be happy with that being it? You know, etched into my tombstone, here lies Michael Turner. A man so serious about his career that his last moments were spent providing adequate notice of his death to his superiors. (laughs) That would be it. I was confronted with this truth about myself that I really did not like. I saw where my treasures really lied. And... Thankfully, I was still alive, so I could change it, even if just for a little while before it returns, right? That there is more to life than our treasures of wealth, our jobs, our cars, our homes, and certainly our food, right? Yet we give our hearts to them. Daily, we focus on them and fixate on them. All of our attention, all of our care, all of our consideration is laid at their throne, thinking that they will make us full, that this will leave us fulfilled. And they're unable to do that. They will never do it. They cannot do it. Only he can. And so I invite you, I invite you this week as a kingdom citizen to to fast with me, to not let this kingdom expectation be forgotten as we pass through those doors um, in the back of the room and enter into a world filled with treasures that offer satisfaction but deliver none. Fast them for a day. Fast them for a time of mourning. Because maybe today we need to mourn the trajectory of our lives. That that our gluttonous consumption of inglorious treasures that we've been filling up on, we've been feasting on, that the world adores these gifts, but they have forgotten the giver. And we're right there with them. Like selfish children. Loving those gifts. And treating the giver as a non-entity. And maybe for us, it's a fasting that must be accompanied with prayer that we need to pray and repent to God for allowing these treasures to carry our hearts so far away from them. We didn't even realize that we were so far away until we're confronted with a moment like that where we're on the ground and incapacitated and going, is this really what my life is all about? Because I don't want it to be anymore. I don't want it to be carried us so far away because of our obsessive focus and fixation on them when it should have been on him all the time. And maybe for us, it's a fast that precedes a calling. That, that this fast that, that comes with a calling that would change the trajectory of our lives and maybe ministry possibly, I don't, I don't want to be a man so focused and fixated on on his career that my last act on this mortal plane is drafting an email when that last moment should have been spent with my children cherishing my wife, glorifying God with my life because God doesn't simply want to be my number one priority as we often think about it. God wants to permeate all of our priorities. He wants to be present in all of our priorities. And he's just sadly not so often with me. He wants to disrupt this passive progression of my life with a fast in order to feed my soul rather than my face because my soul is anorexic and my body is not. (laughs) I've fattened my body, but how often do I forego food to fatten my soul? And finally, we need to fast. Maybe we need to fast to prepare for deliverance. And remember, that deliverance wasn't just for Ezra. It was a deliverance for all of Israel. Imagine a a Genesis, full and fulfilled, not on food, but on God, feasting upon him, treasuring him in a world where people only know hunger people to keep searching around every corner and down every avenue for something, anything that'll satisfy them. And there we would be a true beacon of hope and redemption of life and satisfaction because it's only found in him. The body will say that this is inconsequential. It will. And all week, it'll scream that at you. Say, so you don't need to do that. You don't need to listen to them. This is all really unnecessary. But Christ has said that in my kingdom, we do this. When you fast. And this is why. So that you will be full and you will be fulfilled. And you will hunger no more. Will you pray with me? Most gracious heavenly father. I thank you for this morning that we have together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it reaches into our lives, shines a light on where we are when we can't even see it. It shows us the way in which we should walk. Pray, Lord, that we would be bold and we would set out down that path setting aside our bodies that scream at us daily our self absorption that that obsesses over all the treasures except the one that is actually worth our obsession the one that can provide actual satisfaction and that's you lord i thank you for offering such good gifts for being such a good God. I thank you most of all for the gift of your grace, your mercy, the gift of your Son for us, this gift of life that we have to give back to you. I pray, Lord, that's exactly what we would do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast.